And I believe that <clears throat> once again this week we'll read through this chapter of Luke 15. Get a feel for where we've come and where we're going. Luke 15 and verse 1. Now all the tax gatherers and the sinners were coming near him to listen to him. And both the Pharisees and the scribes begin to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. And he told them this parable, saying, What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture, and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I tell you that in the same way there will be more joy in, the, in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous person, persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, if she has ten silver coins and loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it. And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin which I had lost. In the same way, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And he said, A certain man had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. And he divided his wealth between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country. And there he squandered his estate with loose living. Now when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country. He began to be in need. And he went and attached himself to one of the citizens of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he was longing to fill his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating, and no one was giving anything to him. But when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I'm dying here with hunger? I will get up and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. He got up and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. The father said to his slaves, Quickly bring out the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. And bring the fattened calf, kill it. And let us eat and be merry. For this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. And they began to be merry. Now his older son was in the field, and when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. 
He summoned one of the servants and began inquiring what these things might be. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. He became angry and was not willing to go in, and his father came out and began entreating him. He answered and said to his father, Look, for so many years I've been serving you, and I've never neglected a command of yours, yet you've never given me a kid that I might be married with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your wealth with harlots, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, My child, you have always been with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to be merry and rejoice, for this brother of yours was dead, and has begun to live, and was lost, and has been found. We continue this morning with this very wonderful portion of Scripture in Luke 15, one of the greatest chapters really in all the Bible for encouragement to sinners regarding God's attitude toward the returning sinner. Last week we looked at verses 1 through 10, and this morning, Lord willing, we'll look at verses 11 through the first part of verse 20. And I want to begin by asking you some questions, see how much you learned last week. And the first one is, how many parables are there in this chapter? How many parables? Deanne? One parable. It says in verse 3, he told them this parable, saying, and then he begins to talk about the man who has the hundred sheep, and immediately he says in verse 8, or what woman, if she has ten silver coins, and then verse 11, and he said a certain man had two sons. So he gives one parable in a threefold form. Uh, someone has called it, this chapter, the parable of the lost possessions. Every one of these, a lost sheep, a lost coin, and a lost son. He never is called the prodigal son in this parable, but he is called the lost son. And so uh, a chapter, a parable concerning lost possessions. In each part, something's lost. In each part, there is intense concern over the thing that is lost. Not just concern, but intense concern. In each part of this chapter, in the three parts, uh, there is diligent seeking. And in each part, something is found, and in each part, there is great joy. So uh, every one of these parallel to each other, and all teaching the same lesson. Uh, second question, who is it who is concerned? Who is it that shows the intense concern? Who is it that does the seeking? Who is it that finds? Who is it that rejoices? In every parable, who does it represent? God. It represents God. So God is re the one. Uh, he is the good shepherd that goes and seeks the lost sheep and says, Rejoice with me. He is the father who receives back the prodigal son. Uh, he is, through the church, by the power of the Holy Spirit, the woman who is looking for the lost coin. And so, uh, God is the one, ultimately, 
who is rejoicing. And whenever we rejoice over the salvation of someone, all that's happening is we are the friends and neighbors called in, gathered together to rejoice with him and share his joy. Uh, amazing uh, thing that Jesus is teaching here concerning the heart of God toward those who come home to him. Third question, what is the key to understanding this threefold parable? Or I could say, I could, I could ask, where is the key? Where is the key hanging in, in this chapter? The key to understanding this parable. First two verses. The key is hanging at the door, as one of the old Puritans said. The key's hanging at the door. Uh, verse 1 says, All the tax gatherers and sinners were coming near him to listen to him. In verse 2, the Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling, saying, This man receives sinners. Now that's the key to understanding all three of these. If you don't hold that in your mind, realize he's talking to two groups. He's talking to uh, tax gatherers and sinners, notorious people. On the one hand, and on the other hand, he's talking to these self-righteous Pharisees and scribes. Those are the two groups, and that gives the explanation of uh, what he's saying in, this, in these uh, parables that follow. Uh, if we don't keep that in our minds, we'll come up with some weird interpretations for what these things mean. Uh, he's not talking about, uh, for example, uh, you get to talking about this elder brother. The elder brother is obviously directed at the scribes and Pharisees. And yet it's very clear that the scribes and Pharisees were just as lost as the prodigal son. They were just as lost as the younger brother. And if you don't keep that in mind, you come to the parable and you start looking at it and you say, well, wait a minute, now this elder brother, he always stayed at home, he never sinned, he, he had everything the father had, looked like he was saved. No, he wasn't saved any more than the younger brother was. He was a prodigal in his heart. We'll get to that later as we look at that eventually. But uh, he was just as evil in his heart while he stayed at home as the younger brother was while he rebelled and went away from home. So you've got to realize who these things refer to. They refer to the one group, the tax gatherers and the sinners, and the other group, the scribes and the Pharisees. So, um, two groups addressed here, the key for understanding this chapter in verses 1 and 2. William Hendrickson points out that there are four, at least four different attitudes that we can have towards lost people. Uh, on the one hand, we can hate and despise them. That's what the scribes and Pharisees did. They actually hated these people, and they despised them. Secondly, we could regard them with indifference. It's neither here nor there. Uh, whether somebody's lost, you just kind of ignore them. Or thirdly, you could welcome them when they come to you. Now that's a vast improvement over the others. But then fourthly, you could actively seek them out. Now the scribes and Pharisees accused the Lord Jesus of number three. They said, this man receives sinners. He welcomes them when they come to him. And Jesus tells the parables, and he says, no, I do far worse than that. I not only receive and welcome, welcome them when they come to me, I'm actively going out and seeking them. I came 
with the express purpose to seek and to save that which was lost. So he confirms their uh, accusation and goes even farther, and he says, I came here to seek and to save. And then he gives these three parables to show that. Well, with that little review then, let's begin this third portion today uh, that begins at verse 11 concerning the lost son. This has been called the crown and pearl of all the parables. Uh, I don't think until I uh, got to this, and I've been speaking, those of you that haven't been here, I've been speaking on parables for several months now, but I don't think that I'd really thought enough about the wonder of this parable of the lost son. It, it, it has been greatly used by God down through church history to encourage the return of prodigals to the father. Um, one man called it the gospel within the gospel. Uh, someone else said this, it remains without equal in all literature and is the most divinely tender and most humanly touching story ever told on earth. Now Charles Dickens, I don't know what, where he stood with God, but he said this is the finest short story ever written. Now Jesus didn't write it, he spoke it, but uh, here's a, from a literary standpoint, he said, this is the finest short story ever written. Uh, another man said, regarded as a mere fragment of human literature, it is an incomparable expression of the patience and generosity with which human love bears with and triumphs over human willfulness and folly. Now, of course, Jesus presented it as much more than that. He's talking about divine love winning out over human willfulness and folly. Someone else said this, among the parables, that of the prodigal is remarkable for the grandeur of the whole and the exquisite beauty of the parts. So there's a lot of people that have commented on this. Really, it's like trying to uh, gild the lily, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's, it speaks of itself a very wonderful uh, portion of scripture the the the, uh, the condition of the prodigal the return of the prodigal the reception that he got someone said you can split the uh, the uh, parable into three movements the rejection of home the return to home and the reception at home now that starts out with the rejection of home and then uh, we get to the return to home and the reception at home. The beginning of the parable, it starts out with the son sick of home. He's sick of being there. But in the middle, he's homesick. He's ready to go back. And by the end of the parable, he's back home again. We have here in what we want to look at today... Uh, in verses 11 through 20, two parts here. First of all, verse 11 to verse 16, a description of man in the state of sin. Description of man in the state of sin. And then verse 17 to the first part of verse 20, a description of man in the state of repentance. Two broad general areas that I'd like for us to focus our attention on today in these verses. Man in the state of sin. What's Jesus say to us about man in the state of sin? If we could get a hold of this. 
First thing is this. Sin is a state of departure. It's a state of departure from the Father and from the Father's house. It says in verse 13, not many days later. Now, he didn't have had this money very long. Not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country. Get out of there, get out of the father's house, and get away. That's what sin is. It's a state of departure from God. Now, this departure had been in this prodigal's heart for a long time. We read in verse 12, the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. So he is dissatisfied. He's demanding his rights, so-called. Give me. Give me this uh, share of the estate that falls to me. Now you see, this, this young man was chafing under authority. He was chafing under authority, and he wanted out. And so for a long time, he was talking about, well, when I turn 18, I can do such and such and so on. Now, you see, beloved, that is a state of folly. Trying to be out from under and wanting to get out of this authority of his father in his life. There may be some of you young people here today just waiting for the chance. You know, when I don't have to listen to what mom and dad say anymore, I'm going to be so glad when I don't have to do what this and that and the other that they say. That attitude of chafing against the authority of the Father and wanting to depart and be out from under. Well, whether that's true of us as children with our earthly parents or not, I know this much is true of every single person here in relation to our Heavenly Father. Because man's attitude towards God is, I don't want this man to rule over me. I want to run my own life. I don't want God to tell me what to do. There's some things that I want to do that God says I can't do, and I want to do that. I want to run my own life. And you remember in Psalm 2, uh, the condition of those that rejected Christ, rejected the Messiah, uh, it's prophesied what would happen. What are they saying? Well, it says, the, Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his Christ. Now, you remember this is quoted in the New Testament, referring to what happened when Jesus came. The kings of the earth rose up. The rulers took counsel together. The peoples imagined vain things. Both the Jews and the Gentiles were involved in the crucifixion of Christ. And they all rose up against the Lord and against his anointed, against his Christ. And this is what they were saying. Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. Now see, that was the root of what happened when Jesus was crucified. Men were saying, I don't want the cords and the fetters of God telling me what to do. I don't want this man to reign over me. And Jesus told that parable, you remember, about himself. He said, it's like a king going away to, or a prince going away to a far country to receive a kingdom for himself. That's what he's done now when he go, has gone to heaven. 
He went to receive a kingdom for himself. But his citizens sent a delegation after him. They hated him. And they sent a delegation after him saying, we don't want this man to rule over us. Now that's the attitude of every non-Christian's heart toward God. It's a state of departure from God, a desire for autonomy, a desire to make up our own rules and be out from under God's authority, and in a word, to be like God. You remember what Satan said to Adam and Eve? You shall be like God. You don't want to submit to this. You shall be like God, knowing good and evil. You can determine that yourself. You don't have to submit to what he tells you to do. Go ahead and eat of that tree. Now, naturally... Uh, a state like that is a state of incredible pride and selfishness. And you can see that in this demanding tone that he had when he said, Father, give me what falls to me. Now, he had a right under the law, according to Deuteronomy. As the younger son, he had a right to one-third of the estate. His older brother had a right to two-thirds of the estate. He had the double portion. But as a younger son, he had the right to one-third of the estate when his father died. He didn't have any right to it right then. But he treated it like it was something that he could demand. And so he comes and makes this demand, give me this. <clears throat> and uh, uh, he has no uh, acknowledgement at all that he's asking a favor. He's demanding in his attitude. And he doesn't consider... Uh, how this demand will even affect anybody else. For one thing, to take your estate, here you've got this big farm or whatever it is, to get a third out of that and give to him, pr probably the father had to break up the estate in some way and sell off part of it to get enough to give him that third that was his. So it wreaked havoc on the, on the family farm to do this. He didn't care about that. And on top of that, he didn't care, most of all, he didn't care about how much he was uh, hurting and grieving his father by what he was doing. The, it's obvious that this was a loving father. You see this as you go on. He didn't care about his father's love. He didn't care about his father's counsel. He didn't want his father's counsel. It would be better to get out of there. He wanted to go. And so he asked this thing specifically because he wants to depart. And, beloved, many, uh, every sinner has done this. Gather up your possessions from God and get away from it. Take the things that he's given you. He didn't have anything to rebel against the Father with except the stuff the Father gave him. Take the stuff that he's given you and use it to rebel against him. That's what men are doing all over everywhere right now today. They're using stuff. The very men that are cursing God, taking God's name in vain today, are doing it with breath that he gives them and that he gave them and strength that he gave them. <clears throat> well, he only cares about himself, and so he heads off to the far country. Augustine said the far country is forgetfulness of God. That's a pretty good way of saying it, isn't it? He wants to forget about it. He wants to forget about the Father's house. So state of sin, first of all, it's a state of departure. Secondly, it's a state of waste. It's a state of waste. 
If you don't know and love God, I guarantee you're wasting your life right now. You're just throwing it down the drain. A state of sin is a state of waste. We see this here in verse 13. He gathered everything together and he squandered it. He squandered his estate with loose living and he spent everything, it says. He spent everything. He squandered it. All of this precious estate, everything that the father had worked for years and years to build up, he took it out. I mean, just just think of this, you know. Just think of the weight. Think of the loss here, the waste of taking this estate and taking it out and just blowing it. Now, that's what he did. He just threw it away. What a waste sin is. <clears throat> time. It's a waste of time. When you think of the years that you spent, if you're a Christian today, when you think of the years that you spent as a non-Christian, just wasted. Wasted years. Years. Precious time just going by, just totally thrown away. Uh, money. Sin is so costly and so wasteful. I mean, Anytime you're involved in any kind of thing, it costs you ten times as much. When somebody else is in sin and you're trying to help them, it costs you ten times as much as if they hadn't sinned. That's, that kind of thing is going on all the time. It is a continual waste of money. And think of minds. Think of the waste of the mind in sin. Uh, I was just uh, getting ready to repair something the other day, and I thought, you know, whatever happened? When I was a kid, they had plastic models, and they had glue that was real glue. I mean, you could you could put just a, put a spot on there and bond those things, and you could work with it. Now you can't even buy decent glue. Why? Because people have taken that glue and taken their mind, the most precious part of your body, the most perfect and intricate part of your body. What could be if, I mean, if somebody could hand you something to give you your brain, they've taken their brains and blown them, sniffing that dope to the point where they can't even sell glue anymore because somebody will take it and throw their brain away. I say that sin is a state of waste. It's incredible waste. They'll take their bodies, the, your whole body, the most precious thing that you have. Uh, I know a man that when I was a boy, I can remember he'd be working out in the garden without a shirt on. He was just like, he looked like Hercules. You know, I'd just look at him and think about, the, and we'd talk about how strong he was. There's one... Uh, his brother, these two guys were brothers, and his brother could, one time he lifted the car so that they could change the wheel. And we talked about how strong these men were. Well, that was in the days of the old type cars, not the modern. <laughs> but anyway, that, that was the thing as a boy. I grew up with that. Both of those guys are decimated by cancer and smoking, smoked their cigarettes till they destroyed themselves. They just burnt out, messed up, wasted, thrown away all that strength of their body. You know the Mar Marlboro man, how macho he was, died of cancer. It's a waste. 
throw your body away. And it, venereal disease, this guy here, loose living and devoured uh, his estate, all this precious estate with harlots. So, the throwing away, the wasting of the body, but worse than all, just wasting your soul. I mean, to think of coming into this world and being given your mind and your will and your emotions and your whole spiritual life and just squandering it. Just take it and just, you know, treat it like nothing and throw it away. That's what men do toward God. That's the state of sin. You, you know, it is a, it, it's a terrible lot that you're going to have to account for before God if you have taken and thrown away all the most precious things that he's given you and thrown them away. Thirdly, the state of sin, it's a state of waste, it's a state of want. <clears throat> Verse 14, when he had spent everything, a severe famine, he began to be in need. Now, eventually, sin leads to this. It leads to this emptiness and famine in the soul. The soul becomes thin and gaunt and is being starved to death as a result of turning away from God. The soul's deepest longings for sustenance are unfulfilled. And this fellow was in the state, verse 16, he was longing to fill his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating. And I mean, people will try anything and everything. They'll go to any length. They'll get down in the mud and eat dirt to try to satisfy the emptiness of their souls. That's the condition that sin will bring you to. It'll get you to that point. Man's spiritual side becomes gaunt and begins to waste away. How many people with big bank accounts are so miserable and empty and starving to death they could just to have a little bit of love, a little bit of something, some reason to live? No purpose in life, everything empty, nothing satisfying. Isaiah 55, God says this, doesn't he? <clears throat> Let me just read it to you. He says, Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in abundance. See, it's just so easy. The answer was so easy. What he was to do. And he's out here starving to death. Physically and representing spiritually. So a state of sin is a state of want. Fourth, it's a state of slavery and degradation. Verse 15, he went and attached himself to one of the citizens of that country and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. Now, these Jews must have shuddered when they heard that. There was nothing so degrading and debased as feeding swine if you were a Jew. There was a saying at the time, may a curse come upon the man who feeds swine. And uh, what's Jesus saying to us? 
He says, sin is debasing. That's what he's saying. It'll get you right down with the swine. It is a debasing thing. Sin will bring you to do things that you could have never imagined that you'd ever be doing. Now that's true. When he left the father's house with all his nice clothes on and all of his money in his pockets, he had no idea that in a little while he's going to be in the mud with pigs, feeding pigs. You don't think that that's going to happen to you. But that is what happens when you set your back towards the father's house. That is what happens. Uh, there is nobody that started out thinking that they would do the bad stuff that they end up doing. This boy never thought that. It just begins to happen little by little, and you get more and more blinded, and you go deeper and deeper and deeper. John Bunyan made this statement. You know, the man who wrote Pilgrim's Progress, he said, Man knows the beginning of sin, but no man has ever known the end of sin. And that's true. You know, you might know the beginning of sin, just some little sin. You know, one lie, <clears throat> one lie. People that are people that are immersed in lies did not get that way just instantly. That starts out by telling one lie. And the same way with every other kind of sin and immorality and wickedness. It starts out with a lesser thing. I heard the testimony of a fellow on the radio one time that started... He started out looking at pornography. He ended up attacking a woman in a parking lot, and he ended up in prison. Now, he didn't plan that when he started. You see, sin takes you down, down, down. It's a downward path, Romans 1. God gave them over. God gave them over. God gave them over. So it starts out with idolatry and unthankfulness, and then God gave them over to vile affections, and it keeps on going down. It's a downward path all the way down. And so sin is a state, a state of sin is a state of slavery and degradation. Fifthly, it's a state of desertion. Verse 14, when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country, and he began to be in need. Now question, where were all of his friends? You get deserted in a state of sin. Your, your so-called friends, they head out of there. Now that's true. And what happens was, in verse 16, it says he was longing to fill his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating, and no one was giving anything to him. That's because nobody can give anything to you, and nobody cares anyway. You are in a state of desertion when you're in a state of sin. You're alone. <clears throat> Ultimately, in the far country, you're going to end up alone. And there's only one answer, and that's turn back to God and go home. That's the only answer. A state of sin is a state of absolute loneliness and desertion. In the end, there is nobody. Number six, a state of sin is a state of insanity. Verse 17. When he came to his senses, when he literally when he came to himself, he said... 
How many of my fathers hired men have more than enough bread, but I'm dying here with hunger. When he came to his senses, that implies that he was insane before. And sin is insane. It really is. The stupidity of it, the incredible moral blindness of sin. It is a kind of insanity. I could, I could, I could tell you real life situations for an hour right now of people that are even right now are doing things that are absolutely insane. They are absolutely insane. It makes no sense at all. Why? When it would be so easy if you would just turn to God, everything would change totally. Why beat your head against a rock wall? And yet that's what the person is doing in their life constantly, day after day after day, because they're insane. It is insane. It's insane for a boy who has millions of dollars to blow it and end up in the pig pen. It's insane for him to stay in the pig pen. And all of a sudden a light comes on. And he comes to his senses. State of sin is a state of insanity. People that are not following God are in a dream world. They're out of touch with reality totally. They're dancing along beside the pit. And the Bible says they are in slippery places. Just like that, their foot will go out from under them and it will be over. It's folly. Last, well, not the last thing, number seven, a state of sin is a state of lostness. He says, this son of mine <clears throat> was lost, but now he's found. He's lost to himself. He doesn't know where he's going. He's wandering aimlessly. There's no purpose in life. It's a state of lostness. Lost to, the fellow, to any true fellowship with anyone else. You've never known what true fellowship is if you're not a Christian. You're lost to that. And most of all, lost to God. Now this is an amazing thing. In all three parts of this parable, of this chapter, the most emphasized thing about the lostness is not the, the item itself, but it's the lostness to the one who lost it. Let me just read a quote here from Herbert Lockyer. In each parable, the word lost is not so much related to the condition of what's lost as to the agony upon the heart of the one who's lost it. The shepherd suffered more than the strange sheep. The woman suffered more than her silver, which was destitute of life and feeling. The father had a depth of agony neither of his sons could share. Now, isn't that true? I lost my coin. See the woman? I lost my coin. It's a lost coin to her. Here's the shepherd. My sheep. I've lost my sheep. He's the one that's, you see, that the lostness comes in. And the father, he's lost his son. And he's waiting and looking, watching for his son's return. God is telling us, His attitude toward the sinner. He's lost to God. Last one. 
the state of sin is a state of death. Verse 24 and 32 again, This son of mine was dead and has come to life. And verse 32, This brother of yours was dead and has begun to live. Apart from God, we're dead. We're dead to God. We're dead to anything that matters. We're just dead to everything that is of value. Dead. In Ephesians 2, when you were dead in your trespasses and sins, He made us alive together in Christ. Well, briefly here, I won't take as long on this, but we see here in the verses that follow, verse 17 to the beginning of verse 20, we see man in a state of repentance. Man in a state of repentance. What happens when a person truly, truly repents now? What happens? Now, if you can't relate to any of this, it just means you're still out in the far country. The first thing that happens is he came to his, his senses. He came to himself. So the first thing about the state of repentance is it's a state of sanity. You're in touch with reality for the first time. Isn't this amazing? Before you can come to the Father, you've got to come to yourself. He came to himself. He came to his senses. Daniel 4.34, you remember God took away Nebuchadnezzar's uh, mind for a period of time. And at the end of that period, it says, At the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven, and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High God and praised and honored Him who lives forever. Now that's what happens to you whenever God quickens your heart and mind with repentance. Your reason returns. You raise your eyes to heaven. You bless the Most High God and praise Him. That's what happens. And so the first thing about a state of repentance is that it is a state of sanity. Your reason returns. And if we could pray, beloved, pray for the people that we know that are lost in sin, that they're that they, the light would come on. Isn't that, it, it's a miracle. I mean, here you see somebody going down a path that is just absolute folly, insanity, and they can't see it. And the instant that the light comes on, they realize, what in the world am I doing here? Now that's what happened to this prodigal. He says he came to his senses and he said, what am I doing in this pig pen? Back home with my father, the servants eat a whole lot better than this. They have more than they can eat. I mean, it wasn't that obvious all along, but all of a sudden, the light comes on inside him. <clears throat> That's true repentance. <clears throat> Secondly, it's a state of resolve. He says, I will, verse 18, I will get up and go to my Father, and I will say to him, Father, I've sinned. I will do that. It's a state of resolve. I'm going to turn. I'm going to do something different. Thirdly, it's a state of confession. I'll get up and go to my Father and will say to him, Father, I've made some incorrect and foolish choices. Is that what he says? Father, I've made some mistakes. 
I did indeed have an improper relationship. Is that what it is to repent? That's not it, is it? Father, I have sinned. He just says it. Father, I've sinned. Now, anything short of that, and I am so sick of this thing, if I made a mistake, you know, I made a mistake. Yeah, you made a mistake, and you made another mistake by not admitting that it's sin, what you did. I have sinned. And so the mark of repentance is the person speaks in terms, not in general terms of I did this and that foolish choice, and I made some wrong choices and then that. He says, the person says, I sinned. I sinned. And notice this. He says, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. Now that's a miracle. When you can see that after all you've done, the worst thing you did was toward God. That's the first thing he mentioned. I sinned against heaven. That's the big one. You remember uh, when David had committed that sin with Bathsheba? and had her husband killed, and he's repenting before God in Psalm 51. He says, he's praying to God, he says, against thee and thee only have I sinned. Well, it doesn't look like to me he's sinned against God only, but it's so big in his mind, his sin against God. And you know, whenever sanity returns to a person and they see no matter how bad they've treated everybody else, the big, big, big thing about sin is, is sin is against God. You think of that person right now that's treated everybody around them in the most horrible fashion. I'll tell you what, their sin towards God is bigger than that. And when you see, when your eyes are open, you see what you've done towards God. And you realize that you've done that towards God. That's a mark of true repentance. I've seen people be very sorry for what they did. They're sorry for the mess they made. They're sorry for the way they hurt people and what have you. But there's no concern at all about how they've sinned against God. That's not true repentance. I've sinned against heaven. <clears throat> and young people, when you sin against your parents, you're sinning against God. That's the ultimate thing. That's what he said here. I've sinned against heaven. He saw that the sin that he had committed against his father was ultimately against God. I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. So he didn't leave out the fact that he had sinned against his father. I sinned against God primarily. I've sinned against you. I've sinned before you. In other words, he wanted to get things right with his fellow men. And he wanted to ask forgiveness. A mark of true grace. A person wants to ask forgiveness of those they've sinned against. If that isn't there, if they're not willing to come to the point of humbling themselves and asking forgiveness of the persons that they've sinned against, they haven't repented. Doesn't matter what they say, they haven't repented unless they're willing to get things right with their fellow men. I remember a friend of mine there in um, in Iowa. <clears throat> he was a drug dealer in uh, California, and God gloriously saved him. And he said, "The next day, I threw my tarot cards in the ditch, 
And I got my hair cut and I started hitchhiking home because I knew that I had sinned. I'd broken my father's heart. And I wanted to get things right with my dad. And, uh, yeah, you don't know my dad. You don't know what he's like, you know, and I can't get in. He didn't do that. He got. He said, I need to get home to my dad. Now, that's something real. We're almost finished. Fourthly, <clears throat> state of repentance is a state of self-condemnation. Verse 19, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. He pronounced the sentence on himself. He saw how bad he was. You're no longer fighting against God, trying to convince God that what he says about you is wrong and you're really better than what God says. And you don't get mad when somebody tells you what God says about your state. You agree with it already. They couldn't tell you half the stuff bad enough about you and what you deserve. And you agree with it and you're ready to stay there to take that position and say it yourself. You side with God against yourself. When you see somebody doing that, that's repentance. That's a true miracle. When they take God's side against themselves. Have you ever been there? Are you still trying to justify the stuff that you want to do? Humility is the fifth mark of true repentance. He says, I'm not worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. He was glad. <clears throat> he would be glad just to have a place, any place. He just said, let me sit in the back corner. You know, just let me be part of your household. He's not trying to be a big shot in the people of God. He just wants to be there at all. Notice the contrast here. We started out at the beginning uh, back in <clears throat> verse 12, Father, give me. Father, give me. And by the time you get to the end, verse 19, he says, Father, make me. Isn't that something? Quite a transition between give me and make me. Make me as one of your hired men. Final thing about true repentance is that it is a state of action. Verse 20, first part of the verse, he got up and came to his father. He actually did it. <clears throat> now there are multitudes of people that have all kinds of good intentions and say the different things that they're going to do and it never does eventuate in anything. You know, <clears throat> Here's somebody thinking about marrying so-and-so. They've got all these problems in their life. But uh, uh, the guy says, well, <clears throat> I know she has this and that problem, but she said she wants to change in that. Well, that makes it all all right, doesn't it? Yeah, you said you wanted to lose weight about 20 years ago. That doesn't mean anything, you see, unless there begins to be action. See, that's the thing that makes the difference. It doesn't matter how many times we we say we would like to do this, that, or the other. What difference does that make? And but what, if we want something, you know, bad enough, we can get real encouraged because somebody acknowledged that they have a problem and that they want to change in that. That doesn't you don't know when that's ever going to be changed. Well, true repentance is marked by action, and so he didn't just say no. 
I'm going to do this, but he got up and he did it. I was thinking of something. I talked to a brother one time in Texas about something in, in his life, and uh, he said that is a good reproof. And he came home and did something about it instantly. I mean, it, it didn't take three minutes. It's like action. <clears throat> Well, there's a lot here, isn't there? The state of sin and the state of true repentance. He came to a place of sanity. He resolved to go back. He was willing to confess that it was sin and he saw that it was against God primarily and against man. He was willing to take God's side against himself. He was willing to take the lowest place. And he actually acted upon what he had said. The Lord willing, next time we'll go on and consider the Father's response to the returning prodigal. Well, amen. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we marvel at this description of the Lord Jesus of what sin is like. And it really is true that it's a departure from the Father's house. It's a state of debasement. It's a state of hunger and want. It's a state of waste. It's a state of lostness. It's a state of death. It's a state of insanity. And... Uh, we thank you and we marvel at this description of true repentance. It's, just, it's having our eyes open to see the way things really are. Realizing that we really are, we really have sinned. And uh, that we've sinned primarily against you. And that nothing that could be said about us would be bad enough. And we just take the lowly position and come back fully prepared to, at very best, be made a, uh, a servant and be put out in the servants' quarters with the slaves. And we, we thank you for the reality of that attitude in every true child of God. And uh, what a contrast it is to the attitude of these scribes and Pharisees that thought they were worthy to be in the house. And what an attitude, what a contrast to the attitude of this son when he started out on his journey. And we, we thank you, Lord, for the miracle that your grace works in the heart. We pray that you would continue that work even here today of seeking and saving that which is lost. Pray in Jesus' name, amen.